Now, would you please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12? Hebrews chapter 12. Our passage is the last paragraph of the chapter. Our God is a consuming fire. It's Hebrews 12, 25 to 29, where we read of our God being a consuming fire. But to lead up to that passage and to understand the context, we will begin in chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1, and we'll read the chapter. (coughs) Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears." For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them, for they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, 
to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We know this, this is your word, given by the Spirit of Christ. It is the word of Christ. It teaches us all we need for life and godliness, all we need for our salvation, and all we need to make sure that we strive by the narrow gate. We strive to enter the kingdom of heaven. All that is good and right is here. Lord, give us this attitude, give us this mind and heart as we approach you and understand this passage. And may we understand that you are a consuming fire and whatever your word says, we must understand, we must believe, and we must obey. In Christ, amen. Well, we've come to the end of chapter 12 and chapters one to 12 in the book of Hebrews is different from chapter 13. Chapters one to 12 in the book of Hebrews, he has been exhorting us in proper theology, proper doctrine, proper understanding of God, our salvation, what Christ has done. This is in chapters 1 to 12. In chapter 13, he will begin to say specifically how we should live. Not that he has not said anything about how we should live before, but in practical day-by-day -day matters, he will do so in chapter 13. It's a very brief discussion of what the Christian faith looks like in terms of daily obedience in chapter 13. This paradigm, this system, this presentation of the truth of God is not new in the book of Hebrews. In fact, if you take some of the more familiar letters of the New Testament, this is the way that they are written. This is the way they are constructed. Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, and partially the beginning of chapter 4, Ephesians, the first part of the letter, is constructed or written to explain the theological. Who is God? Who are we? And how should we um, understand in truth what the gospel is? Then in Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6, 4, 5, and 6, he explains how we should live. If you take the letter to the Colossians, Colossians chapters 1 and 2 describes the gospel, describes who God is, what God has done for us in Christ. And then Colossians chapters 3 and 4 describe how we should live as a result of it. The same is the case here in the letter to the Hebrews. He has told us 
what God is like, what our salvation is like, who Christ is, what Christ has done for us, and then how we should live as a consequence of it. If we truly believe it, then how our life will reflect that truth. The Bible is doing this on purpose because obedience to God is not a matter of us earning our salvation. Obedience to God has nothing to do with work salvation, works righteousness, doing good deeds in order to get to heaven. The Bible does not teach it. In fact, the Bible teaches the very opposite. Our letter has taught the very opposite for the first 12 chapters. It, he took 12 chapters to teach us that this is not the way of salvation. Salvation is not by good works. Salvation is by Christ and Christ alone. Who he is and what he did in his first coming to save us from our sins and what he will do in his second coming to save us from our sins. This is what the letter is all about in the first 12 chapters. We must understand that, understand good works in its proper place. Good works do not save us from sin, but as he's explained here, good works are a consequence of having been saved from sin. If we are saved from sin by the grace of God, then that grace that was first entering our life upon our conversion remains in our life and continues to conform us to the image of Christ, continues to transform us to live according to Christ. So that's the proper place of good works in our life, as a fruit of our salvation, as an evidence of our salvation, not in order to earn our salvation to, as a wage for what we have done. It's only on the basis of Christ that we are saved. So this truth he has hammered home for 12 chapters. Another truth that he has hammered home for 12 chapters has to do with this twin approach that the Bible uses, and even here in our letter, this dual approach or twin approach, one of encouraging us with all the goodness and kindness and grace of God. He has encouraged us chapter after chapter after chapter in what God is like, what he has done for us, what Christ has done for us, what our salvation is like, all of the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, all of these attributes and kindnesses of God toward us, he has explained. We have encountered them chapter by chapter in various places in this letter to the Hebrews. For example... For example, in chapter 4, which we read, he encouraged us in 4.14 to approach Christ in prayer because of who he is and because of our standing in Christ. He encouraged us, he says in 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin." Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 9, more encouragement. He says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, 
that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. And he continues with the word of God in 13. The word of God with an oath, 13, 613. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, but and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge and laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, these are just samplings of places in this letter where he has encouraged us, encouraged us to persevere, encouraged us to put our faith in the hope and the promises of God, just as Abraham and many others did, we ought to do the same. And it is for our good and for our salvation. However, there is another aspect. I said there's a twin or dual approach that the letter uses and even the Bible does throughout the whole of the Bible, from the book of Genesis to Revelation. What it does is also warn us. The Bible warns us of the righteousness of God or the justice of God, the judgment of God, the punishment of God, the retribution of God. The Bible warns us. It warns us that if we have all of this goodness set before us, we should not spit upon that goodness. We should not reject that goodness. We should not put that goodness behind us. We should not throw it onto the trash heap. That goodness of God we should not reject. As we read in Hebrews 12, Esau rejected it. He was raised in a godly household, in the household of Isaac and Rebekah. He was raised in that household, but what goodness that was set before him, what gospel truth that was set before him, he rejected all of that. He did not find a place for repentance in his life. He rejected repentance, turning away from sin. He rejected all that goodness, and therefore he only had the judgment or justice of God awaiting him. Only that. And the letter warns us, not only with Esau, but as we read earlier, with the wilderness generation, chapters 3 and 4. The mass of people, the millions of people, most of whom were unbelievers under the leadership of Moses out of Egypt and into the wilderness, he said that they did not have faith, their hearts were always astray, their disobedience caused them to die in the wilderness. He says these things in chapters 3 and 4. Those are warnings for us not to be the same way. When the goodness of God, the grace of God, the gospel of God is presented before us, we should never turn away from it. Rather, we should embrace it with enthusiasm. We should embrace it and not reject it. So, keeping that in mind, the dual nature of the word of God in that way, encouragement and warning, we have our final warning. We have our final warning here in 25 to 29. 
our final paragraph of warning. See to it, verse 25, that you do not refuse him who is speaking. See to it. Watch out. Be careful. We cannot fall asleep. We cannot be lazy. We cannot be sluggish. We should not be considering the truths of God as something that we can carelessly or in a carefree way approach whenever we feel like approaching it. We have to be like a guard, a watchman, a watchman who's on the tower or a high place of the city, overlooking on a mountain, overlooking and watching to see if the enemy is coming by. We have to be on guard like this. That's why he says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He said the same in chapter 4, verse 1. He said in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, let, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to come short of it. Chapter 3, verse 12, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. And in chapter 12, chapter 12, verse 15, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. He's been warning us like this throughout the letter. We must be on guard. We must see to it. We must watch and be vigilant and diligent to understand what is being said to us. And what should we not do? Not refuse him who is speaking. Not refuse him who is speaking. We cannot be listening to God or the word of God as though God were merely a parrot, the bird. We cannot listen to God as though he were a parrot. If the parrot is trained to say good morning and he says good morning constantly all day long, we cannot ignore God as though he were a parrot. We cannot do that. We should not do that. Whenever God is speaking... He says, refuse him who is speaking. Understand that the truth of the words being spoken, the character of the words being spoken, the importance of the words being spoken depend on the one who's speaking them, correct? Whenever we know and understand the proper place of the one who is speaking to us, we pay attention carefully. When we have a problem with our car, we don't go to the plumber to ask how to fix the car. When we have a problem with our car, we go to the mechanic because we understand when we hear his words, he's going to be knowledgeable about that issue. When we have a problem with our health, we will not go to the roofer to ask about our health. We will not go to the roof. We will go to a doctor to ask about our health because we understand based on the knowledge, based on the position, based on the skill of the one we're asking, that that person has authority to tell us about it. So in our case, he's directing us all the way up into heaven. He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't refuse the words of God because it is the God of heaven. It is the judge of heaven. It is the creator. It is the redeemer. Why should we refuse the words of God knowing that they are coming from God? Once we understand the source of these words, then everything else is irrelevant. That's why the prophets, they had this proclivity, the prophets had this proclivity to announce their words by saying, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. 
As we read in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There Paul announces a command, and he says that it's in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once we understand who's speaking to us, then that should cause us to listen and cause us to believe and cause us to turn away from whatever sin. He says further in 25, he explains why. He explains why. Whenever a sentence begins with F-O-R-4 in the Bible, we have to think of it in terms of explaining a reason. In most cases, explaining a reason because. Just substitute the word because in your mind for this word for. Because. Why should we not refuse him who is speaking? Because, he says, if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Who was it that warned from earth or on earth? It was Moses. Moses received the words of God and Moses delivered the words of God to the people. And the people were so terrified by hearing the words of God and by seeing the phenomenon on the mountain that they said, Moses, we're not gonna go near the mountain of Sinai. We want you to go near, and then you tell us what God tells you. Remember they said that in Exodus 19 and 20? The people said that to Moses, and Moses said, that's well and good. That's what I'll do. Now, what was the penalty, what was the worst penalty under the law of Moses for disobeying the law of Moses? And they did not escape. What was the worst penalty? Turn to chapter 10. Chapter 10, Hebrews 10 He explains, if they rejected the one who warned them, Moses, on earth, what could Moses do to them? They could not escape Moses. 10.26, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When our apostle tells us that they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, what he means is that uh, Moses the prophet, the worst penalty that he could issue to someone on the basis of two or three witnesses the worst penalty that he could issue to someone was the death penalty, physical death, stoning to death, execution. Or at Sinai, they would be stoned or shot through. See, this is the worst thing that Moses could do. So it was a problem or it should never have happened that anyone disobeyed Moses, correct? Because in anyone's right mind, if the penalty is the death penalty, No one wants to experience the death penalty if he's thinking properly. 
And that was the worst thing that would happen to them if they refused Moses' words. Moses could issue the death penalty and say he ought to be stoned to death. But as we just read in chapter 10, and now he says in 1225, he says, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Much less are we going to escape from him who warns from heaven. If we turn away from God who warns from heaven, how are we going to escape? There's no way. Moses is less than God. God is the great eternal God, the king of heaven, the God of heaven, the creator of the ends of the earth, and he is our redeemer. We're not going to escape. And in fact, from chapter 10, remember how the apostle in 1029, he actually said that if we refuse the words of God from heaven, our punishment is more severe. Or as he said in 1225, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. In 1029, he says, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and insulted the Spirit of grace? If we trample underfoot the Son of God, insult the Spirit of grace, the punishment is more severe. How much less shall we escape? This warning is a very severe warning. When we hear the gospel of God, we should not treat it as the words of men or even as the words of a holy man, like the man of God Moses was. No, we should treat the hearing of these truths as coming from heaven and the punishment to be more severe than disobeying Moses. Disobeying Moses brings an end to our physical bodies, correct? But disobeying God, the eternal God, brings an eternal punishment. And what is that eternal punishment? Hell, the lake of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where the devil and his angels go, all wicked men will also go. This is what he means when he says, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. May that not happen. This also should be a correction because in our day, we often hear that God in the New Testament, he's kinder and less severe than the God of the Old Testament. This is what we often hear, but not according to the many, many passages of the New Testament or if we just take the sampling of Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 12 that we have just read, no, he's saying it's worse because if we reject the gospel, the clear presentation, the clear announcement, the clear preaching of the gospel, if we reject the gospel of Christ after it has been fully accomplished by the first coming of Christ, how shall we escape? It's a severer punishment to reject Christ than to reject Moses. So it is more severe. The New Testament is more severe in terms of the consequence of disobeying what we hear, disobeying that. Now, this is not to say that the gospel is not in the Old Testament, and it's not to say Moses did not preach the gospel. It's only comparing the worst thing Moses could do to a transgressor of the word of God 
compared to the worst thing Christ will do to the transgressor of the word of God. And what Christ can do is eternal punishment. Verse 26, he further explains why we should listen to God in heaven. Verse 26, and his voice, God's voice, shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. At the time of that phenomenon at Mount Sinai, God's voice shook the earth. There was earthquake, there was thunder, as he explained in verses 18 and 19. He says, there was blazing fire, no, no one should touch the mountain. There was blazing fire, there was darkness, there was gloom, whirlwind, blast of a trumpet, sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them. Yes, all of this happened, and it was so terrifying that the people could not bear the words, tolerate the words, that even if one of their animals went off and went astray and touched the mountain, their animal deserved to be put to death. That's how careful and meticulous they needed to be when God appeared on Mount Sinai. So his voice shook the earth at that time. And there was no dispute because millions upon millions of people experienced it. No one doubted it. This is why Moses one of the reasons why Moses is mostly, among Jewish people, uh, an undisputed prophet. They know God has spoken to Moses because from the very beginning, millions of people saw it and they even admitted it, that God was speaking to Moses. So God speaking to Moses, his voice shook the earth then. His voice shook the earth. Now, what is he saying in verse 26? But now he has promised. Notice he called it a warning in verse 25, but now it's a promise in verse 26. What is this promise? With promises, usually in the Bible, usually in the Bible, a promise is that which is going to be a blessing, something good and beneficial to those who have faith. So in 26, what is the promise? Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Echoing what happened at Sinai, the prophet Haggai is the one being quoted here. Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. The prophet Haggai, about a thousand years after Moses, promises to the people of God that God is intending not only to shake the earth, but also the heavens. He's going to shake the heavens and the earth in a spiritual way. This is what the prophet Haggai means. In a spiritual way, God is going to shake the heavens and the earth. He's going to do that, which is different than only the physical experience of the mountain of Sinai shaking. He's using the Mount Sinai experience as a way to illustrate that in a spiritual sense, He's going to disrupt the heavens and the earth. He's going to shake up the heavens and the earth. Now, what did he mean? He explains in verse 27. What did the prophet Haggai mean that God intends to shake the heavens and the earth? 27, and this expression, yet once more, denotes 
the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Yet once more, yes, in verse 26, Prophet Haggai said, yet once more. So when he says yet once more, our apostle interprets and correctly interprets by saying, this denotes, this means that God intends to remove those things which can be shaken as of created things. And what does he mean by this? We know that in terms of created things, they can be shaken, like the earth was shaken, and whatever other things that are on the earth can be shaken. God did that at, at various times, and especially at Mount Sinai, in order to inculcate or uh, cause the fear of God in the people. However, God has a further and eternal, unshakable kind of shaking that he's about to conduct. Verse 27. The removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Now, what are those things that cannot be shaken? What are those things that the prophet Haggai meant and our apostle cites here? What are those things that cannot be shaken? We know that when the gospel is in us, when Christ is in us, when the Holy Spirit is in us, this gospel cannot come out of us, meaning we cannot lose what forgiveness of sins we have obtained. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And by verse 39, the last verse of Romans 8, he says, after explaining all of the hardships and afflictions that could consume us and devour us, he says that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 39. So our salvation is unshakable. Philippians 1, 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God who began a good work in us will perfect that good work in us until the day of Christ Jesus, until the day of the second coming of Christ and all the events related to the future and eternity. This is what God is intending for us. He's intending for what he started in us to remain in us unshakably so forever and ever. This is the unshakable aspect of the things of God that we have received. It is ours, it is secure, as he said in Hebrews 6, it's an anchor of the soul. We have all of these deposited within us, a pledge to us by his Holy Spirit who dwells in us, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. The Holy Spirit's work in us, 13 and 14, that the Spirit's work in us is going to remain in us because he is given as a pledge of our inheritance. This is the unshakable kingdom, the unshakable gospel, the unshakable salvation that we have. And this shakes the heavens and the earth. How so? 
How does it shake the earth first? It shakes up the earth because, as the apostles or the disciples were called in Acts chapter 17, these are the ones who turn the world upside down, right? The first shall be last and the last first, right? Those who are despised in the eyes of the world, foolish in the eyes of the world, we are the wise ones. Those who are wise in the eyes of the world, they are the foolish ones. So God reverses everything and he turns around everything because of us wherever we are. Whether it's in our families, whether it's in our neighborhoods, whether it's in our communities, or whether we go to another part of the world, the Christians are the ones who are living in the opposite way of the whole culture, the world, the way the people are living. So we shake up things in that way throughout the earth. But we also shake up things in heaven. We also shake up things in heaven in the sense that we are the ones who, though we don't belong there, we are there. We have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We don't belong there. We are strangers to heaven. God is the one who inhabits heaven from all eternity to all eternity, from everlasting to everlasting. You are God, Psalm 90, verse 2. So God is the inhabitant of heaven, but then we shake up things in heaven in that we enter heaven by his grace. We enter heaven. We don't belong there, but we will be there. We will be there. And when we are there, how else will we shake up heaven? We'll shake up heaven according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? We are going to shake up the heavens and the earth in this way too, in that though we don't deserve to be in this position of authority as kings, he will elevate us to be kings to reign and rule with Christ. And as, as those who rule with Christ, we will judge the world, he says in verse 2. The saints will judge the world. And in verse 3, do you not know that we shall judge angels? We will be in that exalted and privileged, honorable position of being their judge. Because we have received this kingdom that cannot be shaken. First in us and then manifested through us in the way we live in the world and in the way that we will live in the world to come. All by God's mercy, by God's grace, he will elevate us to be that way. And if this is the case, returning to Hebrews 12, 12, 28. If this is the case, verse 28, he says, Therefore, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, what should our response be to this? What should our response be to the kingdom that is an unshakable kingdom? Remember, the kingdoms of the world come and go. The kingdoms of the world come and go. Assyria came and destroyed Israel. Babylon came and destroyed Judah. 
but Babylon overturned Assyria. Then Persia came and destroyed Babylon. Greece came and destroyed Persia. Rome came and destroyed Greece, and so on and so forth. This is what happens in the kingdoms of the world, but we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken because his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his kingdom is one which will have no end, Daniel seven fourteen. This is the kingdom of Christ. We are in this kingdom. So if this belongs to us, what should the response be? He says in 28, let us show gratitude. Let us show gratitude. This is a command. This is a cohortative kind of command. That is, it's encouraging not just the individual, but everyone who hears of it. Hey, let's do this together. That's what's called a cohortative imperative. That is, all of us, let's do it together. Let us show gratitude. This is what we should do. Show gratitude to God. We don't deserve this. We don't deserve it. Why don't we deserve it? Because of our sin. Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. We were under the condemnation of death. We had Satan as our father. You are of your father, the devil, Jesus said to the unbelievers of John 8, 44. This is who we used to be. Now we're not that anymore. We aren't that because of what he's done for us in Christ. He made us alive together with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, 5 and 6. This is what he did. He saved us and caused all of this to happen to us. So what is the proper response? It should be gratitude, thankfulness. We understand that we are who we are by the grace of God. What do you have that you did not receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? Oh, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15. 2 Corinthians 9, 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. This is the kind of gratitude we should have for these reasons, for all of the things that he has done for us. And even in chapter 12 and verse 28 of Hebrews, when he says, let us show gratitude, he has explained for 12 chapters why we should be grateful because of who God is, what he's done for us, what Christ specifically has done for us, what we used to be, what we're not anymore, and what we are in Christ, and what awaits us in the life to come. Show gratitude. This showing of gratitude should be manifest in each life, each believer's life, as individuals, as we pray to God. We should not pray to God even when we have uncertainties and anxieties we should never pray to God just complaining and saying, God, I'm anxious, I'm worried, I don't know, I have this indecision, these people don't like me, or whatever, without gratitude. Because Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says that we ought to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. With thanksgiving, always with thankfulness, 
for what's going on. Even when afflictions and uncertainties and hardships come upon us, we should give thanks to God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In everything give thanks, rejoice always, and pray without ceasing. Gratitude, and this gratitude should be manifested. The people who hear us pray, the people who hear us talk, they ought to know that we know who we are, that we are who we are because of God's work in our life. And we are grateful for that. And this is what we have to announce to people. Gratitude. But also, and most importantly, toward God. It's not just gratitude so that we have peace of mind, that we are reminded of the promises of God, that we might benefit somebody else, which is all well and good. All of that has its place. But this gratitude should be toward God. We have to keep God front and center. He must be the focus because he's the one that did all of this. And so those who turn away, as he started in verse 25, he said, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. If we turn away from him who warns from heaven, if we turn away from him who warns from heaven, then we are not showing gratitude. So, a clear manifestation of those who don't have true eternal gratitude toward God are those who turn away from the word of God. If we turn away from the word of God, then we do not have the gratitude that he is telling us we should have. Remember, in 3.6, he says, we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. In 3, verse 6. In 3.12, he says, take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Hold fast firm until the end. Encourage one another. Don't fall away. Don't have an evil, unbelieving heart. He's been telling us that in the early chapters. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear lest, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to come short of it. Chapter 6, 6, verse 4, 6, 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. These are not people showing gratitude and continuing to show gratitude, but they are falling away and they are walking away. Chapter 10, chapter 10. 10.23, chapter 10, verse 23. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Hold fast our confession without wavering, because God is faithful. Whatever he's promised, he will deliver on that promise. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Don't forsake assembling together, as is the habit of some. Encourage one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Chapter 10. Continue toward the end of the chapter. Chapter 10. Calling on us to persevere. 1036. 1036. Actually, 35. First, 1035. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. These are the ones who he's saying must persevere if we are righteous or truly righteous, but those who shrink back, shrink back to destruction. These are the ones who are not showing gratitude, continual gratitude for what they have received. 12.28 Let us show gratitude. Why? By which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. When we show gratitude, we offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. When we think about what God has done for us, notice this mixture of gratefulness, reverence, and awe. It's not only reverence and awe, and it's not only gratefulness. It's a mixture of all of it a combination of all of it. We must have gratitude, but it should not cause us to have a carefree, flippant idea of the gospel or of God himself, that God is our buddy or God is our pal. We should not treat God like that. We should have reverence and awe toward God and the things of God. Yes, he's kind to us. He's friendly to us. He's done many good things for us. But this gratitude should not lead to a licentious life. It should not lead to a, a, a free-thinking kind of life, a life that wants to do whatever it wants to do without considering the things of God and the worship of God. In our day, one very cunning and tricky way people have called the service of God or the worship of God, they have called it a celebration. They have called it a celebration. You may have seen this, that churches often call their corporate worship on the Lord's Day, they call it a celebration. Now, why do they do that? I submit they, that they do that because they don't want the worship of God to include reverence and awe. They don't want it to include reverence and awe. They just want everything to be happy, positive, good, 
Don't talk about sin. Don't use the word sin. Don't say the word hell. Don't say the word judgment. Don't say anything about punishment. Don't say anything like that. Only celebrate that God does whatever we want him to do for us. They treat God as though God is a Santa Claus. They treat God as though God is a grandfather. They treat God as though God is a candy man who only gives good things and we should only celebrate because we can keep on imbibing and engorging our gullets with all kinds of good things from God. That's why they call it a celebration. They don't want to think about their own sin turning away from sin. They don't want to think about the holiness of God or the righteousness of God. They don't want to understand these good things in their proper place. It's good to be grateful for what God has done in its biblical context. But it's also good to have reverence and awe toward God in its proper context. If we don't understand gratefulness or his goodness in the right way, we won't understand his reverence and awe in the right way. If we don't understand his reverence and awe in the right way, we won't have any concept of his his goodness and his grace towards us. Both of these must be biblically practiced, biblically understood and biblically practiced. Both have their proper place. And how do we know so? Verse 29. How do we know that we must approach God with both gratefulness for what he has done for us, but also reverence and awe for who he is and what we could have been or would have been without his grace in our life. Why? 29. For, because God, our God, is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Whose God? No, not the God of the Hindus and the Muslims, because those gods are idols. Not the gods of anybody else, but our God, the God of the Bible, the God that we worship, He is our God, and this God, the true God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why is it that Jesus in John 17 called his Father Holy Father? Why is it that the disciples in in Acts chapter 4 called Jesus Holy Child Jesus? And why is it that we call the Holy Spirit from John 14, 15, and 16 the Holy Spirit? Why is it? Because of this, he is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Of all of the analogies he chose, he did not choose to say that our God is a cupcake. Our God is sugar. Our God is a grandfather. He did not choose any of those analogies. He said our God is a consuming fire. And for this reason... It should motivate us to show gratitude, reverence, and awe toward God because he's a consuming fire. This is what he's like. No one wants to touch fire. No one wants to be in the middle of fire. We know what happens when that happens. A biblical illustration of that, a couple of them. One is in Daniel chapter 3. The friends of Daniel, the three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to worship idols. And they went near the fire and they were thrown into the fire, but nothing happened to them by a miracle of God. But what happened to the soldiers who came near and the fire's heat was turned up seven times hotter than usual? 
the soldiers, they were slain while they're carrying the friends of Daniel to the fire and throwing them into the fire. They were slain immediately because of the fire. That's what fire does, right? And the fire of God can do and does do the same. In 2 Kings chapter 1, 2 Kings chapter 1, there's the evil king of Israel, the evil king of Israel sending his messengers to the prophet Elijah. And the first two groups have a captain of 50, and the captain of the 50 comes both times, the two captains, they come in an arrogant way, insisting that Elijah do what the evil king of Israel wants him to do. Come over here and come talk to me. And then what does Elijah say? If I am a man of God, like that's what you had just announced, you said, oh man of God, come, the king of Israel wants you to come. And Elijah said, if I'm a man of God, may the fire of God fall from heaven and consume you. And instantly that's what happened. Consumed both of these groups, the first 50 and the second 50. The third 50, the captain was smart enough to come with a humble attitude and say, spare my life, I'm, please, please. The way he talks and approaches Elijah is with contrition or humility. He approaches Elijah that way and Elijah says, okay, I'll have some mercy on you and I have a message that you can take back to the king. Notice the, what the fire of God can do at will. This is the way God is. Now, how does it manifest itself? How does it manifest itself? Well, from these two examples, what has it done? What did it do to these groups of 50 and the captains of the 50? What did it do to the soldiers? And what will it do in the lake of fire and brimstone, which is a second death, Revelation 21, 8, 21, 27? And 22, 14, and 15. What will this lake of fire do to these wicked people forever and ever? It will punish them. That means that in the Bible, when the Bible, whether our passage here or Deuteronomy 4.24, which he is citing or alluding to, Deuteronomy 4.24, God being a consuming fire, for the wicked, God is a fire for the wicked because they are like the chaff which the wind drives away or like the chaff which the farmer collects and he just burns it all up to get rid of it because it's worthless and useless. So the fire of God, when we preach or hear of the fire of God, it is intended to tell the wicked, to warn the wicked that this is what God will do to you forever and ever. The lake of fire is your destiny for, because you refuse to repent. But the fire of God, or God being a consuming fire, is for our benefit also. It's for our benefit also. How, how so is it for our benefit? In 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul explains, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, the Apostle Paul explains how this fire of God is for our benefit or for our testing. 1 Corinthians 3.10 According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... 
Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. When God judges us, God will judge us as though he were putting us through fire to test what we have done between our conversion to the second coming of Christ. What have we done between conversion and the second coming? And if we have conducted or produced works which are like gold, silver, precious stones, then there will be a reward. Wood, hay, straw, then those things will be burned up. They are useless and they will not remain forever. We'll suffer loss, but we'll be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, by the way, speaking of that, he's speaking of what God does on the day of judgment. He's not speaking of a place where people go upon death, where everyone goes, called purgatory. Purgatory does not exist in the Bible. It's contrary to the Bible. It's false. It's heretical. We should not believe it. Because it gives people false assurance or false hope that they can live as they please now because God's going to take care of it all in purgatory. And they can be there for millions of years, suffering, having their sins purged from them or the punishment inflicted on them for their sins, that that is what will happen to them and they can live as they please now. Whether they believe the gospel, not believe the gospel, whatever, they don't need to take anything seriously now because there is purgatory that's not what 1 Corinthians 3 is teaching. It's talking about the day of judgment, not a purgation or purgatory as an intermediate place between earth and heaven. Nothing like that is existing in the Bible. So we should not believe it and give people false hope as to what the gospel is and how they are saved from sin. We are saved because of Christ, not Christ plus purgatory. Only Christ. Another example is 1 Peter chapter 3. How God is a consuming fire now toward us, toward the believers. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. He explains our salvation. We'll pick it up right in the middle of his explanation. Verse 6. 1 Peter chapter, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 6, 1 Peter 1, 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ. He says, we greatly rejoice, even though for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Our trials are only for a little while, because eternity and our current life do not compare, because it's only a little while. Seven, why? That the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Faith is that which is in the heart, but the faith is visible and proven 
by what happens on the outside. So when we have faith in our heart, God brings various trials, various tests, various problems into our life, and he calls it tested by fire. He compares it to how gold is purified. So the sin in our life is consumed or taken away by the fiery trials of life. By the fiery trials of life, our dross, our impurities, our sins are removed gradually, progressively from our conversion until we meet Christ face to face. And when we do meet him, there will be, there will be grounds for praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our God is a consuming fire. For this reason... We ought not to ever refuse God who speaks from heaven. Remember that our punishment, if we refuse him, is worse for refusing Christ than for refusing Moses. A spiritual death is much worse in the lake of fire than a physical death by execution. And Christians are characterized by having this unshakable kingdom. We are grateful for it. And we show this gratitude and we live and worship God with both gratitude, reverence, and awe, knowing that our God is a consuming fire. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.